It is time to get this party started. Welcome back to Lit for Christmas, the podcast where the books are full of Christmas spirits and so are the hosts. Join Marty and his friends as they drink their way through the great, and maybe not so great, works of Christmas literature. The fireplace is lit, the tree is lit, the hosts are lit. Grab a glass of something holly and jolly and join us as we get lit for Christmas again. Welcome back to the first Lit for Christmas party for season two. My name is Marty. And um, you all know that. And if you've been to one of our Lit for Christmas parties last year, you know that you are in for a wild ride. I'm already on my, I think, fourth drink now. Um, Now, my good friend and co-host from last year, Amanda, decided to take a break from podcasting to raise her kids and turn them into poets and proper Christmas fanatics. But have no fear. I have two people lined up who are going to step in to help me host these little drunk Christmas shindigs. So without further ado, let me introduce you to tonight's co-host. She is the Clarice to my Rudolph, the Snow Miser to my Heat Miser, the Abbot to my Costello, the Maraschino Cherry in my drink, the person who tells me when I'm wearing socks that don't match, my wife, Beth. I'm not sure I'm ready for this. That is why we drink. So, um, most of the listeners already know way too much about me, but um, they don't know that much about you. So why don't you tell them a little bit about yourself, Beth, and and your attachment to Christmas and books and, you know, what a loving, caring, wonderful, smart, intelligent, handsome husband you have. Oh, for God's sake. Honestly, you know he came up with that one himself because I never would have said, well, maybe I would have said those nice things, but I doubt it. I just called you my Clarice to my Rudolph. That is nice. Yeah, that is nice. Mm -hmm. That's a nice relationship there. (laughs) Okay, so will you let me speak now? I'm sorry, yes. So I have lived here in our lovely UP nearly all of my life. Um, I did have a stint overseas. My dad was in the Air Force. He's an Air Force brat, everybody. No, I'm not a brat. I prefer the term. Wait, wait, wait. Yes, you are a brat. I prefer the term <laughs> military child. Mm. Um. So, yeah, my dad, we lived in Germany, and I got to visit the Eiffel Tower. And, um, the Eiffel Tower's in Paris. You said you lived in Germany. <laughs> I just thought I'd point that out. We both had... Um, I've, I'm on my fourth drink. I think Beth is on her second. But. Well, you should know you made them for me. Yes. Pretty I, strong. I lose count. Okay. Right. Can I get back to my story? Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. <laughs> so, yes, I went to the Eiffel Tower in Paris. I also went to Windsor Castle in England. And then Austria. Austria. <laughs> Austria. I skied the great ski slopes. The great ski slopes. The great ski slopes of Austria. <laughs> so yeah, I remember that guy who said he was the Clarice to my Rudolph. Hills are alive. <laughs> <laughs> so we got married many, many, many years hey, ago. Hey. Uh, many, many. Um, like uh, what, twenty-seven? Uh, twenty-seven years this year. Um, 
Yes, it will be 27. Yes. Okay. Um, so I carried our daughter and our son under my heart for nine months mm -hmm. and I don't ever let them forget it. <laughs> <laughs> um, I actually have graduated from college, the same graduate, the same college he graduated from, like, what was it? Four times already. But wait, we got to tell this little story because my, my son who is 13 oh, years yeah. old, when, when he's like talking about us, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. And he's like, he talks about how smart people are in the family. And he says, oh, my, my, my daddy's the smartest. Mm -hmm. And then Beth he always says, says, he says, well, he's a college professor. And I will say, I graduated from college too. But he seems to forget about that part. Anyway, I'm sorry. I have to point that out. Yeah, so he's not the smartest one. No, I will admit that I'm not the smartest. Okay, thank you. So my life has been a series of service jobs from the time I was a stay-at-home mom and taking care of this lunatic next to me. <laughs> um, I've been a substitute teacher, a cashier, receptionist, a front desk clerk. And um, I said that I enjoy reading and going to plays and movies and going to camp, which, you know, it's out on a beautiful lake and I like to hot tub when I can get there. And um, I also mentioned that I you don't have a hot tub, by the way. But I like I like going to friends' houses who have ones. I like to keep friends who have hot tubs. Our idea of a hot tub is you fill a bucket with hot water and you put your feet in it. Okay, so that's me in a nutshell. All right, all right. So um, that is my lovely, adoring, beautiful, drunk wife, Beth. <laughs> so um, tonight we are going to talk about one of my favorite Christmas books of all time. I've been waiting to do this. In fact, um, it, it, it's it's like my favorite. I, I, I'm probably giving away my rating that I'm going to give at the end of this podcast, mm -hmm. but I think it's one of the best Christmas books ever written. So this is um, Oscar Huelos' novel, Mr. Ives' Christmas. And nothing says Christmas like child abandonment, a murder on the steps of a church, and years of suicidal depression. La, 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 la. Yes, this book, well, it, it's it's a little dark. A little? A little. A little. Oh, it, a little. Un petit. A little. Oh, okay, a lot. All right, but before we get into talking about things that make this novel seem like a group therapy session, why don't we do a little couples therapy? You know, uh, you, I mean, I mean, we live together and we see each other all the time, but you all know, the time. what, what's going on, Beth? What, what do you want to, how's life with you? And what, what do you want to talk about tonight? Okay. So I recently started a job hmm. as a front desk hotel clerk, which, you know, yes. And, um, we just had, um, the other night, we had a cream soda with, I had a cream soda. We didn't have cream soda. They had beer. I had a cream soda. And um, Where? <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. Okay. All right. In the town up the, up the road from us. Am I allowed to say that? But, <laughs> you were talking about when we went out to a, a bar yes. with a friend of ours. Yes. Yes. Okay. yes. A couple of friends. Were you there at the bar with us that night? You don't remember? I was there. All right, go ahead. Tell you. Tell, I'm sorry. I don't even know where you're going with this. So anyway, I had a cream soda, not a beer. They had beers. Slow down. 
And they wanted me to talk to them about tales from the front desk at mm. the hotel. So, oh my God, is there drama <laughs> at the hotel? Mm. This person doesn't like this person and this person and then the boss and this person and the, oh my God, the drama. So, and then but you there, did call a customer fast. I did. <laughs> She called, call she called someone yeah. who was checking in or something. She called him fat. I just said, well, you know, um, I mentioned that he, you know, because he was wearing this hat that said pray for snow. And I was like, you obviously aren't around here because we pray for snow to stop. We are from the UP. So we pray for snow to stop. And I said, well, um, I said, you might not want to wear that hat around here because you might get jumped. And he kind of looked at me like, what are you talking about? And I was like, well, you know, cause I said, you might not, well, and because I'm fluffy and he, he looked at me and he, I'm like, but you, you are muscular, which I was not calling him fat. I was not, but Mon, I told this story to my friends and my husband they just laughed at me because they thought I was telling him he was fat, and I wasn't. Wait, fluffy, muscular. <laughs> no. that's, that's like potato, potato, tomato, tomato. I'm I sorry, to, it I, is. God, I wasn't calling him fat. Because if I had called him fat, I'd get fired from this job. So, no, it wasn't fat. And by the way, we are not like criticizing or fat shaming or anything oh, no, on this podcast no. whatsoever no 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 i'm a big girl i fully admit it i'm a big girl you know all the more of me for me to love oh, oh, so that's what's happening with me what's happening mm -hmm. with you well as as all of you know i'm a i'm a I teach college among some of my other jobs and many of my other many jobs. of my other jobs and um and it's spring break, thank God. It just started on Friday, so I'm off and don't have to go in and teach for a week. And um, so I'm looking forward to uh, a little downtime. Yeah. You know. Yeah. Um, which uh, you know, I don't, I don't get a whole lot of downtime. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of a. Uh, that's that's my thing right now. I. Well, here's the thing, you know, it, it's because of the pandemic, you know, teaching at the college is a little stressful because you have to wear masks and then you're constantly getting emails from students saying yeah. I'm sick or I tested positive yeah, or something like sick. that. It's the brown bottle um, flu. No, no. I mean that you and you have to accept that if they're not feeling well, they can't show up. Uh -huh. you, you have to accept that. Okay. So, I mean, it, the, this whole weird um, you know, dynamic of, uh, you know, students who, students who, uh, you're not sure if they're telling you the truth, but you have to accept them at their, at face value and everything like that. Mm -hmm. So, um, it's been, it's been a, a weird, difficult semester. I'm hoping that we're coming to the end of, of this, you know, it seems like things are turning the corner and, and you know the pandemic is sort of calming down yeah, a okay. little bit. We okay. We're hoping, but um, yeah, but uh, you know, so you know, th this whole semester—I mean, actually, this whole year has been like that at, at the college. It's been yeah. crap. 
Okay. You were, <laughs> I have also warned Beth about swearing. Crap. Because this is a Christmas podcast. It might be a drunk Christmas podcast, but okay. we still try to watch okay. our language. Okay, it's been crap. So yeah, um, you know, I just um I I and I will say this. I I, I wanna make this announcement. I have literally not had alcohol since about Christmas time. You know, has it been that long? It has been that long because the last time I sat down and did an episode of Lit for Christmas, I was drinking by myself. It was about two o'clock in the morning on yeah, Christmas Day. And um and so but um it's been good. You know, um I'm going to try to um uh uh limit my alcohol intake to maybe a couple beers with a friend during the week and then um only for these uh Christmas podcasts uh, for Lit for Christmas. Okay. These Christmas parties. I haven't drank. I haven't. I haven't drank this much alcohol. Oh, gosh, it's been a long, long, long time. Well, you know, long time. You are like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> I. Just, all right. Well, you know, um, it looks like it looks like Beth is getting down to the bottom of her glass, and I think it's time. I, is it time? It it is okay. time that we it, it's time that we do it. Okay. We need to talk a little bit about what ghost of Christmas present is haunting our lit for Christmas party tonight. Come in, come in, Ebenezer Scrooge, and know me better, man. You are I am the ghost of Christmas present. Spirit, take me where you will. So, um, tonight, I, because Amanda's not here, Amanda always chose the drinks. Um, so I chose the drink tonight. And I chose a drink that I think reflects um, the setting and time of Mr. I's Christmas. It's a drink called the New York Sour, which is a version of the Whiskey Sour. Um, which is, um, you know, uh, the the difference between a whiskey sour and a New York sour is that you make up the whiskey sour, you pour it in a glass over ice, and then you add a little uh, red wine to it. You add a little cheap, sweet red well, wine. Well, I said this is how he sweet. told me to buy it. Yes, get some sweet, cheap, well, cheap, sweet well, red wine. Well, and this is a really old drink. Um, it's it's actually something that um, probably has been around um, since the probably 1800s, something like that. Um, let's see. Um, I'm looking at my notes here. Um, so the first mention of the whiskey sour was um, that you that anybody knows about was in 1862 from the Bartender's Guide. By the Bartender's Guide, 1862, by Jerry Thomas. I see. Um, but it's probably um, it was around a lot longer than that. Um, they've been they've been probably kind of like you <laughs> around a lot longer than that. <laughs> wow. Um, well, you know we... he is older than I am, so I got to get but... those old jokes in somewhere. Sorry, that. To the whiskey sour. So, you know, um, so a lot of people think that um, sailors 
um, you were the ones that sort of created this cocktail, uh, the whiskey sour. And um, so here's the reason why. In the 1800s, you know, traveling by sea was was not fun. It wasn't like getting on a cruise ship and, and you know, joining people on the Lanai deck. It was just not fun. And um, it was really difficult to find, you know, fresh, clean water for long voyages. Um, so that made like whiskey, rum, anything like that, you know, really popular with with sailors at the time. Okay. And um, addi- in addition to not having the water, you know, the clean water to drink, um, many sailors suffered from scurvy. Oh. Uh, scurvy, which is... Not enough when, fruits and vegetables, right? right? Well, it can kill you. It's a, oh. It could be a fatal disease, um, <laughs> which, which is which is part in part caused by vitamin C, lack of vitamin C. No, no, they didn't. Scurvy? Not whiskey. But what they did was they um they would um mix whiskey with lemon juice, and oh, the lemon juice vitamin C right, limes and juice. well they would put limes and lemons and oh, oranges into the whiskey, and so this would then this sort of um, this sort of morphed into what we now know as the whiskey sour. Ah, um, so it's a little bit healthy for you. Well, it was for the sailors because uh-huh. it prevent it, it prevented the the scurvy, uh-huh. you know, or it helped with the scurvy anyway, which could kill you. I um, mean, there was no fresh water to mix the lemon or lime juice with, so they mixed it with whiskey, and okay. so that's where you know this came okay. came from. But you know, the 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 whiskey sour itself. You know, what, what you, here's the ingredients for the whiskey sour. Um, I've made about four or five of these, now, well, actually six or seven of these now, and I've drank three or four, four of them. Four, I think. Four, I think. So anyway, the, the traditional whiskey sour usually has bourbon in it. Tonight, I used Southern Comfort because it was the only whiskey I had. Um, and um, a little bit of fresh squeezed lemon. Um, you can put greenhouse bitters in it if you want. I did not put bitters in it. I don't even um, know what greenhouse bitters are. Uh, well, and we didn't mm-hmm. use fresh lemon juice. In no, that we 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 use regular lemon juice. It didn't matter. It doesn't matter we if you want to get a brand of a yes. big box store and then around here. A little a little simple syrup, and then you shake that all together on ice okay. with ice, and then you pour it over ice in a cup, and you garnish it with. Like either a wedge of lime, of lemon or some cherries or both. We had some cherries left. We had some cherries left. But um the to make this a New York sour, because this book that we're reading this made in is New York. set in New York. Yep. You know, the entire well, most of the book. I yep. mean, there's there's a little sidetrack to I think England at one point and, and uh Nepal and stuff like that. But the the bulk of this book takes place in New York City. Okay. So to make a New York sour, what you do is you mix a whiskey sour, you pour it over ice into your cup, garnish it with uh, the cherries, and then you add just Some a dash. Red wine. And you just add a dash of the cheap, of the cheap red wine. Red wine. And um, it it actually helps um sort of counteract the uh the lemon. So that um, it's it makes it a lot sweeter and um, easier to uh, drink. So, um, you know that's that's what Christmas spirit we're drinking tonight. And let me tell you, um, I'm sort of schwitzing right now, which I'm I'm really really warm. So um, I'm a flannel nightgown. I'm warmer than you are. Well, I you know what I I'm I'm warm. So um, 
can't tell you. Yeah, that's what that's what we are drinking tonight. Um, that is the spirit that's filling us with Christmas spirit. And um, now that we've taken care of that, um, it is time for a little visit from another spirit of Christmas. Ebenezer Scrooge, I have come for you. You, you are the spirit, sir, whose coming was foretold me. I am that spirit. What are you? I am the ghost of Christmas past. Long past? No, your past. So, um, Beth, can you give us a little background on tonight's Charles Dickens, Oscar Hijuelos? Can I give you a lot of background? Well, I know you've been Oscar? doing a lot. She's really anxious about this, being stepping in as the co-host and stuff like that. So she's been, like, um, totally, like, I have researching and researching and research. pages of info. This is going to be the longest Lit for Christmas episode ever. He wouldn't give me, he said, so I listened to the past Christmas podcasts and he's like, well, just, you know, listen to them. So I listened to them and there's like, God almighty, there's a lot of information I need to get in here. Well, okay, so no, you do you want me to, to start? Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, you have to pick and choose okay, what you think well, is important for people There's to know. a lot of stuff about Oscar. Here, wait, well, see. what, I mean, you pick and choose what's important. Okay. Obviously it's important that he was born on August 24th, 1951. Okay. And um, he was born to Cuban immigrant parents. That's a hard word to say. <laughs> Not really. In New York City. Um, and um, that led to, you know, he's, his books are all about the Cuban experience and feeling, um, you know, that you're cut, cut away from the Cuban experience. Well, and sort of that plays into the book, too, that we read for tonight. It plays well. into a lot of his books. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um. I mean, like, let me just, I'm looking at my papers and I can't find where it is. But anyway, it plays into a lot of his books. Um, yeah, because it's like, should I wait till I get to the names of his books or no, can I just say it now? Okay, mm -hmm. so the first book that he wrote, um, it talks about Cuban identity and connecting the values to New York City and Spanish Harlem. So then, did he grow up in New York? Um. No, he actually grew up in, um, he actually, oh my gosh, did I not write where he grew up? <laughs> oh, 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 poop. Did I not write where he grew up? No, no, I got it. Um, well, I'm sorry. Yes, he did. Grow <laughs> no, he grew up in Morningside Heights of mm -hmm. Upper Manhattan. So yeah, he did live in New that York. That would be growing up in New York. Well, you know, I'm really nervous. <laughs> I, I have so many pages. Okay. What do Go you ahead. Okay. I'm sorry. All right. So something really fascinating happened to him when he was three. So he was struck down with nephritis, which some people say nephritis, but it's just easier if you say a serious kidney disease. Yeah, that is a very serious disease. And he was kept in the hospital for almost a year. So what happened, his mother said, um, you went into the hospital speaking only Spanish and you came out speaking only English. Mm. So this was, um, according to him, the seed of one of the main themes of his fiction, which was trying to cope as an outsider within my own culture. He became estranged from the Spanish language and therefore 
from his roots. It's pretty deep, huh? That is pretty deep. Yeah. Um, so that's what happened to him when he was three. And, and you know, you sort of sense that in the character of Mr. Ives because Ives doesn't really know his background. And so he feels very disconnected, even though um, most people that look at him think that he's um, of Latin descent, Hispanic in some way, shape or form. So, I mean, it, it really is part of the book and a part of a lot of his books, too. Yeah. yeah. Um, he in the Mambo Kings, his most famous book, made it into a movie by starring at Antonio Banderas. You had to mention. Come on, he he's like the Latin heartthrob, you know. No, not really. Yeah, he kind of is. Anyway, <laughs> it's about Cuban immigrants and their quest for the American dream and their eventual disillusionment. That sounds like something from a, from a, the back of a book or something. I read it. <laughs> I read it when I was Googling today. Oh. oh am I allowed to Googling. say Google? Oh, poop. Google, yes. Why <laughs> <laughs> does it matter what you say? Google. <laughs> well, I wasn't sure. You know, I'm new at this. I'm not sure what I can say and what I can say. Okay, so let's see here. Okay, then he went to college. Um, he began writing short stories, and his first book, which I mentioned earlier about those um, immigrants who um, in integrate their Cuban identity and values, he began writing that in um, that, and he studied under Donald. Help me out with that Bye name. Me. Okay, yeah, Bye what he me. said. Um, and he's a really great, great writer. And this man was his mentor and his friend. Mm -hmm. And I figured out when I was looking at paperwork today that the reason why they're so connected is because of their magical realism that's in their books mm. that's a big thing in latin american books yeah magical realism well, and it is and you know and plus donald bartlemy is i mean that's a big thing i mean bartlemy is known for for being um well magical realism but um he really sort of pushes the boundaries of what fiction is and what fiction isn't um, he's a, um, more known as a metafictional writer. So I looked up metafiction, and that's why I used magical realism. Metafiction is really hard for me to understand. Well, metafiction was, is writing metafiction about, is is writing fiction, about, about fiction. fiction within fiction. Well, it's sort of like Slaughterhouse Five because Slaughterhouse Five by Kurt Vonnegut, he starts out by saying that he's his, you know, he's a writer who's writing about. Something so it's he's writing about writing about something that was confusing for me, so I just said magical <laughs> realism. That's what but it's I'm different. Metafiction on. is different than meta magical realism, but, okay? Okay, go ahead. So he won many awards in 19. Well, am I allowed to say what year he won? Why not? <laughs> <laughs> so in 1990, how much have you had to drink? <laughs> I made these drinks, they weren't that strong. So let's see. Um, then he, after college, he took on a job at an advertising agency, much like Eduardo Ives. Oh, so he worked in advertising. Yes, he did. Oh, that's interesting. That's all I have on that, though, is that he worked at an ad agency. For how long? I don't know. Didn't say. Okay, all right. So then um, he won an award from, in 1985, he won an award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. Mm. This prize was a year-long residence at the American Academy in Rome, with the stipend generous enough for him to be able to write the whole time, which is what Martin would like to do <laughs> the whole time. Wait a minute. 
So he won this stipend. So he quits the advertising agency. Right. And he goes and he writes in Rome. Right. Okay. Okay. So then um, this trip was the genesis of his famous novel, The Mambo King's Play Songs of Love, which we already talked about, and so, Antonio Banderas. So wait a minute. So that's when he started writing The Mambo Kings was when he was on this Right. Thing. When he went okay. to the American Academy in Rome. Okay. So where were we? Huh? <laughs> what? <laughs> was I just talking about? Okay. The stipend. The Mambo Antonio Banderas. Well, yeah, you always get I was distracted. I about Antonio you Banderas. say that name, it always gets you distracted. Okay. So um, from Antonio Banderas, we talk about... Mambo Kings. No, that's Antonio Banderas. That's what I'm talking about. Okay. They're um they're these brothers <laughs> and they have an orchestra and it's 1950s and then because of that he won the Pulitzer Prize in literature. Antonio Banderas? No. Hewelos. <laughs> Oscar Hewelos. So yeah, he writes Mambo right? Kings and he wins the the Pulitzer Prize. Book. The first Latino to win the Pulitzer Prize. And that's Prize. very significant. It is. It's, it's very significant. It is. Because he was Oscar Huelos and he was Latino. And and he, plus he, I mean, he sort of became like this godfather of um, uh, Latino and Hispanic writers because he was the first person to win that Pulitzer. What he said. <laughs> comes out and then there's a movie with who is it honey i can't remember <laughs> antonio banderas and then later in san fran home of ghirardelli chocolate san fran san fran well those of us who have been to san fran know it as san fran those of you who we haven't grew up been, in the UP. I've been to so San Fran. San Francisco. Go ahead. <laughs> I've been to San Fran. Anyway, so there was a stage version that was staged mm. in San Fran, which you know. Are you going to? Um. Okay. <laughs> okay. So after that, then because it was such a big success. Which the movie, or the book, or the stage version? After the book, okay? <laughs> you're, you're jumping over uh, through time. Here. I can't help it. I have so many notes. <laughs> okay. Okay. Then he was able to write full time. So he, um, the lives of immigrants, which we talked about earlier, is one of the main themes of his novels. Okay. So he then writes another book called The Fourteen Sisters of Emilio Montez O'Brien. That came out in 1993. And then there was Ives. So, Martin's favorite book. It is my favorite book of all of his. And I think it's his best book. Um, even though it didn't win the Pulitzer or anything. Um, it was nominated for the Pulitzer. Yes, it was. It was a finalist, actually, for the Pulitzer Prize. Yes, but it, it didn't win Correct. the Pulitzer. Correct. Yeah. But, um, yeah. Uh, so how many books did he write after Mr. Ives Christmas. Um, a few. Yeah. He wrote um about, he wrote a book called The Empress of the Splendid Season, which um also talked about immigrant life. 
he Why don't wrote... we just make a blanket statement? Okay. Everything he wrote about was immigrant life. Okay, all right, we can say that. <laughs> then he wrote Simple Habana Memory, and then Dark Dude, which uh, was like his a coming-of-age story that he wrote was about. It like a memoir? or No, was it... It, was a, it was fiction. Okay. Not him writing about himself. That book came later. Uh, just a couple books later, he wrote about himself. So he wrote about, um, it's called Beautiful Maria of My Soul. It talks about the um, the Maria from the Mongol Kings. It goes back to her. Oh, so it's like a, like, is it a sequel or just? I think you could safely say that. Okay. And then um, his book was um, Thoughts of Without Cigarettes. And he wrote that um, because his father was constantly spoke, smoking. And um, was he a smoker? Uh, I don't think so. I didn't read anything in my many books, in my many, <laughs> <laughs> my many pages of notes. I did not read anything well, like that. Just because I know that he died of like a heart attack. He did have a heart attack. So I, I was just wondering. if It didn't say in my many pages of notes <laughs> that he died because of uh, his cigarettes. It, okay. it did in my many pages of notes that his father smoked cigarettes so he well, wrote, even if you even if you grew up around someone that smoked cigarettes you're going to get that kind of secondhand that's true you know i grew up around people who had secondhand smoke yeah so it it, it affects you no matter what it does so, yeah it does mm -hmm. so that came out in 2011 and then there was something that was posthumously pr printed posthumously uh-huh hard <laughs> to say when you've had two drinks yeah it was Actually, um, it's called Twain and Stanley Enter Paradise. And it's a story about two men and their bond that joined the most famous men of the 19th century. Mark Twain and, oh gosh, what's his name? Henry Morton Stanley. Have you heard about this book? Who the hell is Henry Morton Stanley? I looked it up. Thank goodness, because I have no idea. He is a British explorer. He was famous for his discoveries and development in the Congo. So Mark Twain and Henry Morton Stanley. Yeah, this is a book that Oscar Hewelos wrote. And I wondered, what in the hell, <laughs> why in the hell is Oscar Hewelos writing a no. book about Mark Twain and the explorer Henry Morton Stanley? Because as Oscar said, I can call him Oscar because he's my close friend. Um, he began writing about them because they seemed a perfect pairing. I don't, under, I don't understand it either. <laughs> That's just what it said in my many I mean, pages of notes. I, I don't get that. I don't understand either, but that's what it said. But it was your job to understand that. I I didn't read the book. You didn't tell <laughs> me to read the books I've talked no, about. No. You didn't tell me to talk about what books you read. Henry Morton Stan. Well, see, this is fascinating to me. I mean, okay, so he was a he was an explorer in the Congo. Right. And I know that Twain sort of traveled all over the place. He went to Europe and he went to Hawaii he went to, I, I believe he traveled to Egypt and all that. So, I mean, and he wrote about all those things. So it makes sense. Um, I'm trying to make a connection. Like I said, it not... was just in my many pages of notes, all right? <laughs> this is just one of the many fascinating things I have to say about Oscar Chirelos. Okay. 
So the book apparently was lengthy, though incomplete, because like he wrote it and then he didn't finish it. So it was left. he died. Yes, he died. So this book was an unfinished, unfinished work. Correct. And then it was published. Correct. Okay, when did he die? Okay, he died in um, October 12th of 2013. Mm. He died sadly, well, maybe happily, but maybe sadly. He was playing tennis. Mm. And he died and he had a heart attack. And the tennis courts were actually named after him. The tennis courts. After he died. <laughs> after he died. Mm. I don't know if I'd want tennis courts named after me if I died there. I know, that would be kind of creepy. You know, you're like happy in your tennis skirt with your tennis partner, your blonde, tanned tennis partner, and you're playing tennis on Oscar Huelos' deathbed. That's, yeah, okay. It is kind of creepy. I find that a little creepy. Okay, but, so, so you we, know. okay, so we talked about his books. Okay. Okay, what else so, can we talk about? Well, I mean... I mean, he's just a fascinating, fascinating guy. I mean, he, uh, and, you know, sort of a, a central figure in in Latino writing and uh, Hispanic writers um, in the United States, especially, and, and Cuban writers, too. Right. Um, so, I mean, he's just, uh, uh, and, and especially in writing about the immigrant experience, which really plays into, you know, the book that um, we're, we are going to talk about tonight. Um, uh, Mr. Ives Christmas. So that's that's basically a little bit about Oscar Huelos. Um, I, I really um, and and now it's time to sort no no of, no wait what I have something very interesting to tell you. Oh okay. In my many pages of notes. He has so many notes. And and you didn't even use like half of my notes. Okay, well what no, what okay. no no what oh, what's fascinating? Okay. No wait a minute. Fascinating thing. Uh -huh. is that while he was a deeply knowledgeable Roman Catholic, they say he had a Yiddisha Neshama, a Jewish soul. Who says? Um, they. I don't know who they are, but people say. It's a thing they say. I, I want to know who they are. I don't know who they are. Well, Google it or something. <laughs> <laughs> Can I use Google? I can't Google it. You told me not to use my phone. I don't have Google. <laughs> You said, I'm not competing with that. Well, the book does sort of touch upon, you know, uh, the book, Mr. Ives Christmas, does touch upon, you know, like um, uh, Jewish tradition and Jewish um, Jewish Im imagery from um, the Jewish tradition as well, even though, Ms. The, uh, even though Ives is like a, a practicing Roman Catholic. So, um, and plus the whole book is sort of based on the book of job absolutely as well. so the book of job i mean like he takes he gets everything taken away from him wait wait we'll save this until oh, we start talking about the it? book oh, but but what i'm saying okay, is that but uh, but what i'm saying is that um the he, he wailos not doesn't draw just from roman catholic his roman catholic background um, and, um, you know, and you said that they, you, you looked through your notes and it said Stanley Friedman, who wrote that article, like right after Huelos died, right. talking about um, how um, Huelos had this like deep understanding right. of, of, you know, Jewish 
Jewish beliefs and and uh, traditions. So um, yeah, I I mean I I can see where that happens, and plus a lot of the imagery in Mr. Ives Christmas doesn't really come out of Roman Catholic tradition. I mean there's there's um lots of different things that um play into a Mr. Ives visions and things like that, his religious visions. So yeah. Okay. Oh. I can go with that. Okay. All right. Well, is there anything else about Huelos that you want to, I mean, because you have pages and pages, you've been like preparing for like 20 days or something for this. Amazingly, so. um, he had the, he had the, like, I told you about the experience when he was three. Yeah. I told you he, no, I think that's pretty much it. Oh, I, and, I, and, you know, and, and all of the information that I have about Huelos can be combined in about 10 minutes. Well, no, but, but what's really interesting about him is, I mean, his immigrant, his immigrant um, experience is very much like a lot of immigrant experiences, especially if you're raised by parents who came to this country. Right. And then suddenly you're, you're forced into a school system that only teaches you English or situations like that. Suddenly you're losing your, your mother tongue, your right. language, and you're not able to talk, talk in it. Right. And that's exactly what happened to Huelos. I mean, he, his parents were Cuban and, right. you know, and spoke Spanish at home. Right. And yet. Which he lost when he was three. Right. In the hospital. Right. And he goes in speaking Spanish and spends, there, speaking spends a year and comes out speaking English. Right. So he doesn't even have that Spanish background Which, anymore. Yeah. So, and, and it, it speaks to sort of that estrangement from who he is or right. who he was, his background. Right. So, yeah. And, and, you know, and I, I think that that sort of plays out in, in the book itself. So, uh, you know, now that we know a little bit about Huelos, um, it's time to sort of celebrate a little Mr. Ives Christmas. So, you know, the first thing I think we need to do um, is sort of summarize what well, this book is. I took copious pages of notes. Are you sure you want me to summarize? Well, I'll, I'll try to summarize quickly um, what the book is about. So, Right off the bat, we know at the beginning of the book, it's like within the first page or so, we know that Ives' son, Robert, is killed on Christmas Eve. He's he's gunned down on the steps of a church on Christmas Eve. We get that right at the beginning. That is not a spoiler. Right. Um, and so we, we have that information right at the beginning. And so this book sort of fills in the details of that particular experience in Ives' life. We get him you know, where he comes from, you know, as a, as a child and we get his whole um, adolescence growing up and his marriage and all that. Um, but the central moment, the thing that sort of shapes Ives' whole life in this book is the, the murder of his son right. uh, um, on, on Christmas Eve, 1967. Um, and, uh, and the thing that we learn about Ives um, at the beginning of the book is that Ives was a foundling. Yeah, that uh, means he was an orphan. Right. He was left on the steps of a, yeah. of a, of a convent orphanage yeah. um, in New York City. And I, I you know, that, that was not an uncommon thing at the time. And the thing that um, sort of um, really sort of plays out through the whole book is that Ives doesn't know who his parents are. Right. They name him Ives. 
because he was with um, the preset names in mind. Right, because of a courier and Ives painting. Yeah, right? it's a courier and Ives painting, so they give him the last name Ives. No, actually, his father had the last name Ives because his father, oh, his no, adoptive his father, father, was an orphan too. Yeah, his father was an orphan oh, too, yeah. and his father was named Ives because the priest gave him that name. Okay. Right. Okay, got it. And then um, I think that uh, Edward is just the le next name that they're going to give. Yeah, that's right. In did the they, orphanage. Did they go alphabetically? Something like that. Okay. So yeah, he's raised Ives is raised in this orphanage until his father, his adoptive father, comes along and his and his adoptive father is also an orphan. Right. Um, so so he's an orphan who's being raised by a person who was an orphan as well, a foundling as well. That's really sad. Are you sure we should be bombing people out like this? Well, no. really sad. well it's not sad. And it's but, sad that the sun died. Well, I mean, there, there's lots of sad. There's lots of sadness in this book, but I think in a, I think in a lot of ways, it's a very redemptive book too. Yeah. I mean, well, think. Well, here's the thing. You know, the, the Ives really, really um, throws himself. He's he's a very devout Catholic, right? And the thing that he sees that why he why Christmas is so central to him and so important to him is that. He sees the Christ child in the biblical narrative of the nativity as a child that everybody wants, that everybody loves, and that everybody, you know, has been waiting for. Mm -hmm. And so there's this disconnect where Ives thinks of himself as a child that nobody wanted, you know, until his father came along and took him. Right. So he's a child that nobody wanted and his mother gave up. He doesn't know who his father is. Um, there's this, there's this possible knowledge because of just because of his olive complexion and his dark hair and everything that he was probably the, the, the child of at least one parent who was, who was Spanish or Hispanic or in right. some way. Right? right. But this is the thing why I think Ives is so drawn to Christmas as a holiday because it's a, a holiday that is, is centered around the birth of a child that is so important, so central. So mm -hmm. I, I I think that that's, that's what's really significant about um, uh, Christmas in this book and why it's so significant to Ives himself, right? Because it centers around a child and he, he and his dad were orphans? Is that why? Well, no, no, because it centers around a child, the Christ child, right. who is so important to everybody. Everybody is adoring this child. And no, they weren't important to anyone because they were both orphans. Yeah. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> so I, I, I mean, I think that that's oh, why that's that's a so really sad. significant okay. part of the book. Okay, I got it now. Yeah, and and um, you know, and then he as he grows up, he, I mean, he's a he's a talented artist. And so he grows up. He wants to be a cartoonist at first, right? Mm -hmm. um, and then eventually um, he meets his wife, Annie, um, who comes from an Irish Catholic background. Um, and, his, and his family, uh, Annie's family is not really happy that she's um, uh, going to, that she's with Ives. They, right. they don't think that Ives is worthy to marry right. Annie at well, all. Just like any family. Well, they don't it, think that. The, well, no, I think that. No, daughter. I think that it has to do with the fact that Ives look like looks like he's Hispanic, yeah. 
okay. and and comes from an immigrant background, you know. Um, so it's sort of like, you know, not that the not that the Irish people weren't immigrants to this country too, because right. they were, mm-hmm. but it's sort of this once or twice or three times removed immigration, you know, where immigrants that came here a long time ago look down on immigrants that have come here just recently, right. which still happens in this country, sadly enough. Uh-huh. Um uh-huh. so anyway, um, so Ives gets married to Annie. Um, and, uh, they have two children. One is Robert, their son, and the other is Carolyn, um, their daughter. Um, and Robert is the oldest and Robert, um, eventually when he's nearing his, um, high school graduation decides that he's going to, um, uh, enter the priesthood. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, and then here's the central part of the book. And, uh, you know, Robert, it's, uh, it takes place, this, this moment takes place on Christmas Eve, 1967. Ives and Annie are off, like, attending the advertising agency's Christmas party. Carolyn um, surreptitiously has ducked out and is at this party where she's getting high mm-hmm. um, with, with some college, college guys. Yep. And, um, and uh, Robert is attending a Christmas um, concert, uh, Christmas, um, choir, choir practice. He's coming out of the, um, church. He's on the steps of the church. And, um, this, uh, this Hispanic child, Danny, Danny, Danny Gomez, he's a teenager, Mm -hmm. walks up, um, uh, and tries to rob him and, um, ends up shooting Robert, fatally shooting Robert and Robert dies on the steps of the church. Mm -hmm. And so the rest of the book, basically is Ives dealing with the aftermath of Robert's murder. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, and how Ives, I mean, literally this, this event throws Ives into not just uh, like uh, depression, but depression that lasts like for decades yeah. Where he can't get over it. That's a lot of depression. Well, I mean, it's really, really it's sad. And it, it is, it, I mean, and it affects him so badly that he develops like a skin condition, just, just like Job. Right. You know, where he has, he has uh, sores all over his body. And, um, you know, and plus his wife, um, who is trying to move on and pick up the pieces of her life. Um still loves him and loves him and is devoted to him, but, um, you know, gets a little frustrated with him that he can't move on, but she, she doesn't, I, you know, you got to love Annie because she sticks with him yeah, and loves him so much. That's what you do when you love someone. Right. Exactly. You so stick around, even if they're depressed. Right. And then Carolyn goes off and then at one point in his life, I've had this mystical vision well, after the four he, wins. Yeah, the four. Well, it, he has this mystical vision after he gets trapped in an elevator with a woman from the advertising agency, and the elevator sort of plummets, and he thinks that they're they think that he's he thinks he's going to die. Which is like my worst nightmare: getting right. trapped in an elevator. <laughs> I think that's everybody's worst oh my nightmare. God. I hate elevators. Um, but at when he comes out of that elevator. He um, goes for this walk at, out onto the streets of New York, and he has this kind of mystical, weird, strange vision of four colored winds, and he sees the goodness of everything. Yeah. Um, and it's it's not. Here's the thing: you would think that a person 
who is a devout Catholic would have, if he's going to have a mystical vision, it would involve Jesus Christ or the Blessed Virgin Mary right. or something like that. Right. But it doesn't. It involves these these kinds of weird, well, I don't want to say weird, but um, things that he doesn't understand. So is that like where the magical realism comes Well, that, that is part of the magical realism. I mean, the whole thing of him like having sores all over his body and then eventually being cured of those sores overnight, that's magical realism. Okay. You know, and there's ghosts all through this book. Mm-hmm. So all of that is like magical realism. Okay. Yeah. And, um, and his daughter, Carolyn, goes off to Nepal and has a vision herself yeah. um, of, of her brother, Robert, at the, at the river, the, Gan- the Ganges, I think, mm-hmm. and um, has, a, has a vision of that. And, um, uh, you know, and eventually what, what it comes down to, because Ives is such a good person, that Dan- Danny Gomez, the one who, the murderer of his son, you know, he gets sent to prison, but but Ives like sends him books and sends him letters and yeah. keeps on. I and mean, his friends, his friends don't understand. Why well, especially are. his best friend, who is who is Luis, Luis Ramirez. Ramirez, who is a like an ex-Cuban boxer. Right, they don't understand why he's sending. Luis him just would like to put a bullet. They through all the guy's would head. like to put a bullet right. through his head. Right, What's and I, I'm. I don't know. Well, no, I don't know what I would do. But there's a lot of there. I think that there's a lot of racism in those feelings from yeah. the people in the neighborhood. Yeah, because even though they weren't that well off, mm-hmm. um, they weren't as bad as Daniel Gomez's family was. Yeah, I mean, Danny Gomez comes from a broken home. Yeah. Um, and, and a very impoverished. This was his existence. grandma and his and, yeah. mother. And Ives befriends Dick Gomez's grandmother, takes them to yeah. takes her to support groups and attends support groups with her, and you know sends letters to the parole board on behalf That's of Danny just Gomez. That's the kind of good guy he was. Well, see, here's the thing, and I think this is why the book, you know, people had trouble with the book because Ives is so good, right? Like unbelievably good, right? Well, I don't know if someone gunned down my son on Christmas Eve on a church steps. I don't know if I would. Ha- I would have a really hard time. I'm pretty sure I would know what to do with him. <laughs> but but you here's but here's the thing. The only thing that can cure and make yeah Ed- forgiveness. Edward Ives better is is by forgiving Danny yeah. Gomez. That's yeah. the only thing That's because right. he knows that if he holds on to that anger and hatred and that for so long, that it's just going to kill him. That's right. So eventually. You know, sort of the one of the one of the really kind of um big moments in the in the book is when he eventually agrees to meet yeah. Danny Gomez after many 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 years. Yeah, he's having a hard time with it too. Well, and he doesn't want to do it. Right. You know, Gomez his is friends going. say you know Luis doesn't want to go. He asks Luis to go with him, and Luis doesn't want to go with him. Well, and then he Louis, doesn't understand. But, but Luis does go. Yeah, he does. He's packing a gun. Well, yeah, because I think he says like, uh, "Wait, I love that. I gotta find that moment." Okay, do you have your copy of the book? Where, where? I Louise... do, but I don't know the book as well as you do. Oh, let me <laughs> let me see what it is. Um, Maybe I'll look with you. Yeah, it's it's a great moment where right after Louise meets uh, Ives, talks to um uh to Danny Gomez, and um. And Gomez comes down and and is really nervous about meeting Ives, um, and um, it's and when he finally comes down, 
Gomez is so, so moved by seeing Ives, this man that he harmed so much, that he just like breaks down weeping. And and Ives has to hug him, right? Right. And and you know, and and you know, and you know, make him feel he ends up comforting his son's murderer. Right. Which, uh, again, which is just I don't know. it's just an astounding moment of I, I mean it's so moving, you know, that this man has that much compassion. Um and then at the end, after this meeting with Danny Gomez, um, he gives Gomez a present, right? Yeah. He gives Gomez a picture of his son Robert. Oh my gosh, yeah, that's right. To remind yes. him every day of his life of what he has to live up to. Oh man. So yeah, that was terrible. Oh, you think that's a terrible well, thing? Well, no, it's not terrible, but I mean, you know, I mean, Danny was young and he just, he thought he was going to get some money off Robert. He was just a kid. He didn't well, know what the heck he was I, doing. I know. And it's... so then, and so then um, Mr. Ives thinks he's being nice by giving him a picture of the kid he killed before he knew what was going on. I I don't know. He, he keeps, I don't know. I he keeps think being he... reminded of the pain but that I he think... caused Rob at Mr. Ives. I don't know no, if that's no, a nice I thing think, to do. I think that it's a matter of him giving Gomez something to remind him of his responsibility, of what uh, of what he, you know, has to live up to, you know, that he had. I think it's Ives' way of trying to ensure that Gomez is going to stay on the straight and narrow. Okay, I can see that. You know, because if you are looking, if you keep a picture of the person that you killed on your desk or or in your dresser or something and look at it every day, that's a reminder of like, I'm not going to go there again. Okay. Okay. I I, I think that that's in some way, in Ives' very strange way, I think that that's his way of, um, of, of really ensuring that Danny Gomez remains a good person. Okay. But that whole scene with Danny Gomez is so heartbreaking and moving to me. Yeah. Takes him a long time to get there. What? Who? Gomez? Takes Mr. Ives a long time to get there. Well, why do you think he takes him so long? Because he seems like a good guy. Why doesn't he just, like, jump on board with that? To forgive him? Well, to go and meet with him. Because that priest keeps on calling him. Yeah, but it takes a long... Because he hasn't forgiven him yet. Mm. He has, it takes him all that time to finally come to where a point where he can meet him and not want to kill him. I mean, he, Ives is not the one who wants to kill him. That's his friends. But it takes a long time for him to come to the point in his journey of letting Robert go to meet his killer. But he's constantly, through his whole life, he's sending packages, care packages. He takes care of um, Gomez's grandmother. It's a totally different thing. To send someone packages when you know they're behind bars, to send them packages and write them letters, it's completely different than when you actually go to meet that person that killed your son. Well, and and here's the thing. I mean, and we sort of uh, sort of touched upon this when we were talking about um, when we were talking about Oscar Huelos, and we sort of got into the book a little bit. But literally, when I and I teach this book all the time when I teach good books at the university, uh-huh. um, uh, you know, this is a when you read the book, it's a complete retelling of the book of Job. 
It is. I mean, uh, and it takes it, away everything. God takes well, away everything. I mean, what he has it, depression like Job did. Well, what does what does he take away from Job? He takes away Robert. No, from Job. Oh, sorry. Excuse says me, the book Job. of Job. He takes away he takes away his family first, right? I, I think he, he, or he takes away his animals first. Well, he takes away his wealth. He takes away his um his animals. Then he kills all of his family. And then he covers Job with sores. It's this whole thing of that. It's um, I always have a problem with the book of Job. It's such a problematic book for me. Yeah, because God takes away all well, this. It's this stuff whole from thing Job. where where Satan goes to to God and says and says, you know, oh, you know, give me the best person in the world, and I'll be able to turn him against you. So this is what God does. This and is God what, says, this is what He wills creates in. And Mr. Ives. And, and, and God says, yeah, okay, you can do this to Job. And so Satan like does all these things or the devil or whoever does all of these things to Job. Um, expecting, you know, like first he takes away his wealth and Job doesn't turn. On Never that. turns. Then he takes away his kids. Yeah, I know. I was kids. like, really? He's not going to turn? And he turn? never turns. Then he covers him with swords. And he still doesn't, he turn. Still doesn't turn. And then, not only that, then his wife turns against him and says, you know, why aren't you cursing God? Then his friends come to him and say, well, you must be cursed. Yeah. Because what did you do wrong? And Job says, and Job still, still believes in God, right. even though he took all of this right. stuff away from him. So, so you have this whole book of Job, right? And, and the, and what I've, what um, Hewelos does is he creates a modern Job right. in Mr. Ives. Right. And, and even though Ives struggles his, his whole life after the death of Robert, he never turns his back right. on, on sort of believing or having faith in humankind yeah, he doesn't. and in the goodness of, of people. Which is absolutely unbelievable. Unbelievable in a good way or a bad way. Because when you say that about a novel, if you say, oh, that novel's unbelievable, that sounds like it's a negative thing. No, it's just like you said, you had a problem with the book of Job because God does all these things to Job and he never stops believing. He never stops believing. He never stops having faith in God, just like Mr. Ives doesn't. And it's like, really? Can somebody really be that good? Can somebody be that good? I don't know. I'm with the whole book because of that. <laughs> so, I don't know if somebody, I've never met anybody that good who can keep having things mm -hmm. taken away from them and still be good and still forgive and send them care packages. I've never met anybody that good. Well, yeah, but you've never met anybody whose son has been murdered and all that. I've met people who have, who've had crap happen in their lives and they're not, and they're bitter. They're really bitter because of everything that's happened to them. So I don't know if I don't know I don't know if there's anybody that's been that good. Are you saying that you could not? You don't think that you could do what Ives does in this book? Honestly, I don't think so. I don't think um, if somebody killed my son, I mean, I I think I would just have a whole bunch of I think. I think hate would probably consume me as much as I would like to try to um, forgive this person. I don't know. Cause I love my son. I love him so much. And I just don't honestly know what I would do. I mean, it's, it's nice pie in the sky. Yeah. You can send him letters and yeah, that's great. Send him letters in prison, but 
I mean, he was to meet him. I just, I just, I just don't think I could. I, I just don't think I could. But, but he, here's the thing. Now, here's the question. The central question is then, what is Hewelos trying to do in this novel with this whole situation with Ives and Danny Gomez and the death of Robert and all that? What do you think his what do you think I what do you think Huelos's reason was for writing this book? What is he trying to do? Besides trying to show that it's a, it's a parallel with the story of Job? Well, yeah, I mean anybody that writes a book, you know, or anything like a book, a play, you know, a poem or something, there's a reason behind that book and poem. You know, I mean I I I've read critics on the, you know, criticisms and book reviews of Mr. Ives' Christmas. And one of the criticisms uh, that a lot of people have is that people find it unbelievable right. that someone could go through exactly. all this shit in their lives exactly. and be able to come out as good as Ives does exactly. at the end of right. it. But isn't that something that we should all strive for? Well, yeah, but in reality, nobody is that good. Seriously, nobody mm. is that good. You have bad things happen to you. You are angry about them for a long, long... It's that saying, forgive and forget. In all the time that I've heard that saying, there was one good thing I heard about it, is that you can forgive someone, but you don't have to forget. It's, you can, it's okay to forgive them for these bad things they did to you, but yeah, you but don't have to forget because you'll always remember. But I don't think Ives does forget. He doesn't know, but I don't. I just don't know. Honey. <laughs> I mean, I see you struggling. I really do. I just do. don't know. I, you know, and here's the, here's the thing that, and why I love this book so much. One of the, I, I will say this when, when, um, uh, when, uh, December, uh, September 11th, 2001, um, I was teaching good books, and um, after that happened. One of the things, I mean, I, I think everybody went through the same thing at that point in time in the United States is um, I, we were all dealing with this collective sense of of grief and anger and, and you know, and how could this happen and, and all that. And I taught this book. I taught this book um, to, to a classroom full of 20-somethings. And, um, and really it was sort of this very healing experience of reading this book about a man who undergoes so much tragedy right. in I his life. He, at the beginning of his life, he's rejected and abandoned by his mother, right. you know, and he feels displaced from his culture and who he is as a person, you know, and then, and then he, he gets a family and he finally has what he's wanted his whole life. And then his family is torn apart. He, his son is taken away from him. And to be able to read a book about a person who could go through that much pain and struggle and still remain or hold on to that hope in humankind, it's a really healing thing. I just don't buy it. I just, I can't. I just, <laughs> part of the reason why I didn't give it five tiny Tims. You're not supposed to say what you gave it yet. I'm not saying what I gave it. I'm oh. just saying I didn't give it five. That's part of the reason because See, I don't believe it. And I think that if you were talking about the spirit of Christmas, 
you know, and what Christmas is all about. Because why, if you're talking about the biblical narrative of, of Jesus Christ and the nativity and why Christ came into the world, you know, if you're, if you buy into that whole narrative, which I do, which you do, then the reason that Jesus came into this world is forgiveness. Right? Well, yeah. Yeah, it is. Okay. So this is a book called Mr. Ives Christmas. Okay. So what I'm saying is that, what, what I'm saying is that a book that is centralized around Christmas, that it's focused, uh, that, that it is focused so much on forgiveness and believing and holding on to the idea that no matter how much crap a person goes through, no matter how much bad stuff you do in your life, you always have a chance to be redeemed in some way, shape, or form. Yeah, by God, maybe. People don't forgive you. They don't People forget. should forgive they you. They don't. They don't forgive you. You're very cynical. No. I know. Is this the drinks? <laughs> no. This is how you feel, too. You think. No, 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 no. This is how you feel. Here's the People do not forgive you. They remember things that you did to them. They remember and they don't forgive you. What I'm, I'm not, I'm not saying that people don't forgive. I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that for this book, what Hewelos is trying to do is he's trying to show you, you know, that that's not the right way. That's not what humankind should be about. Well, yeah, ideally that's right. But it's not. It's not that way. Nobody, nobody would go to see the killer. I, I don't. I don't agree with son. that. I don't agree with that. Well, you're wrong. I think. I think <laughs> you're I'm, wrong. I don't think I'm wrong. It's just I don't think that you can get to that point in your head where if you put yourselves in Ives' position, you can forgive, and therefore. I think that if you were ever, and hopefully, God, I hope it never happens, yeah. right? You know, but hopefully, you know, if if you were in that position and you can't forgive, then you're going to spend the rest of your life letting that eat you up and it's going to destroy you. It, it will destroy you. I try to forgive. I've gone to, I've, I've talked to so many people about forgiving the people that have hurt me in the past. I talk, I've listened to so many people talk about it and I still can't do it. I can't do it. I and just you get can't. angry and, and it doesn't, and it, I guess this is turning into couples therapy all of a sudden, <laughs> but, but here's the thing. This is what I've, I think where, where Annie gets past it, you know, she can't understand Ives going to Danny. Right. I, Annie just can't do it. Right. And she can't meet with him. She can't forgive Danny, but she has moved on with her life, right. you know, and realized that this is what my life is. I have either I can stay stuck in this place of sorrow and despair, or I can pick up the pieces and I can move on and do something, you know? And, and so in some ways, that's one way that you can deal with it as a person. You can say, okay, yes, this person is still alive. Yes. This person who killed my son now has a family and children. And that's not fair. It isn't fair, but I'm not saying that's fair. But here's with with Ives, his whole thing is 
he has to forgive because he's he is stuck. I mean, he is truly stuck. Yeah. He can't get past the death of his son. He literally for like 20 years, he is clinically depressed where everybody around him, you know, his wife is practically at the point where she wants to leave him because of it. Yeah. Right. Yes. But until he can get to that point where he can forgive, he's never going to have his life back. I know that. <laughs> I know that. There are hurts and that I, I'm still not healed from. That has happened 30 years ago. I know mm-hmm. that. And I know it's eating away at me. And I know I give that person power and control over me. But I can't let it go because it hurt me so bad. I can't let it go. Well. I mean, this sounds like a thing for your therapist. I, I don't think we're going to solve this tonight. But I, I'm just, I'm just, I mean, here's the thing that, and this is why I find this book so beautiful, because just like the book of Job is this, this sort of lesson in holding on to your faith and in goodness and in God's goodness, no matter what. Right. That's what the book of Job is all about. And I think that this is what Mr. Ives Christmas is all about, too. It's about holding on to that idea of goodness, salvation and redemption, no matter what. Now, do I think that that's realistic? I'm not even going there. I but I find in the character of Edward Ives something that is incredibly moving, something that for me, is something that uh, is a that lesson is something to aspire to in your life. I totally agree with you there. I completely agree. And that's with that. why I think it's one of these perfect Christmas books. Because let let let's let's think about this. Is a Christmas Carol really um, a realistic book? Would a man who spent his whole life bitter and angry and and greedy and not trusting humankind in one night? be able to be redeemed to the point where he's saving his, he's giving his uh, clerk a raise and, and uh, saving Penny Tim. This is Charles Dickens you're talking well, about. Well, I know. This, this is Charles Dickens. You don't mess with Charles Dickens. I, what I'm saying is that if you cannot accept that someone like Edward Ives can forgive and, you know, and be redeemed like that, then you also can't accept that, Ebenezer Scrooge can't be that either because both of those stories have magical real elements in them. Yeah, but A Christmas Carol was made with Muppets. <laughs> I like Muppets. Yeah. I've never seen Mr. Ice Christmas made into something with Muppets. Well, this movie, this book should have been made into a movie and oh. it never was. Well, see, it never was because you know what? I have this picture of Ives and of Robert and of uh, Annie and of Caroline. I have this picture in my head, but I don't know. I don't know if I would want to see it on the screen because well, I just have these pictures in my head. And sometimes when books go to the screen, they put on well, what you want, well, what they want. The they want the famous actors and actresses in it, so it'll make money. I think that, oh, and and I got into this last last season with Amanda, where I think the best Christmas books are books that have that that um, lining of sadness, that kind of melancholy, 
in it because it's only by being lifted out of that that I think that you reach that point in a Christmas story where you have that whatever Scrooge moment or Linus moment where people understand what the holiday is all about. And I think that Mr. Ives' Christmas falls right into that tradition um, with with what it does. Hmm? I'm still not giving it five tiny tims. Well, I'm not. I'm not trying to convince you, I'm but I'm just. I'm just trying to. I I think that, and I'm not saying that it's a realistic story because it's, it's not. Well, no, it has it's these magical real elements in it. It's all. It's about time and the warping of time because this is a book that like jumps back and forth in time, and I know you hate that. I hate that. Uh, you hate that. You you want your books chronological, I where know. I kind of love this you know like moments where it the book starts out you know after robert is dead then moves backward and then moves forward in time until very confusing for me well i don't find it confusing i think it's i think it's really interesting because it sort of folds all of these elements on top of each other so that we can see how one part of ive's life um explains or or explores another thing that happens to him and why he reacts the way he does. And I think that's a brilliant thing in Mr. Ives' Christmas. I'm still not giving it five tiny Tims. I'm not trying to get it. I'm, I'm not, I'm not to... giving it five tiny Tims. Okay. All right. But, you know, and we haven't even mentioned one of my favorite characters uh, before we wind up everything about talking about it because we are now entering our 20th hour here of talking about Mr. Ives' Christmas. <laughs> it's been that long. For the love of God. But, what, but what, I, what I'm saying, one of my favorite characters is um, Luis uh, yeah, Ramirez. I like Luis. You know, he's kind of a bastard. He is kind of, yeah. I mean, he beats his son. Yes. He, tricks, he tricks his wife, Carmen, when she's just here you know, in, 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 come to this country, he tricks her into marrying him. Right. You know, he almost holds so why her. why do you like this guy again? There's just, uh, he, I think that uh, the reason that I like Ramirez is because he's the perfect foil for Edward. Oh, that's true. You know, he's, for all of Ives' perfection in a person who can forgive and who tries to find the goodness in everybody, Ramirez sees the world as rotten to the core. That's why when they go to see Daniel, that's why Luis has a gun. And that's why Luis has a gun and Edward How has a picture of, of his son. I did it. Oh, that's good. Good job. Tiny Tim's. Good job. Okay. No, it's not good five, but I like it. See, I might give it more. But, but I, I love, understand that. But I, but I love Luis Ramirez because um, he is he is the perfect perfect antithesis of who Edward Ives is in that book. And 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 I will say this, Ramirez has his moment of redemption. That's true, he does. Right at the end, after his wife Carmen dies of breast cancer and his wife's ghost comes to visit him, which is another heartbreaking thing. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Stop. Because he cheated on his wife and, hateful. you know, and, Absolutely and, and she stayed, like, faithful to him and loved him through it all. Mm. And then his wife comes to him after Ramirez is like beating himself up for everything that he did to Carmen. And he should have beat himself deserved, up. Yeah. He should have beat himself up because, but here's the thing about Ramirez. 
for him to move on, he has to forgive himself. That's the, what he has to do. And the only way that he can forgive himself is if his wife, Carmen, you know, Forget shows him. up and, and can say to him, I love you. Uh-huh. Okay. Then he can forgive himself. Okay. So everybody in this book has this thing that where they have to forgive, forgive themselves. And this whole book sort of, I mean, Charles Dickens is a central figure in this book too, right. because Ives has a collection of original uh, first edition Dickens and uh, Ives' wife, um, what is her name? Annie. Annie, thank you. Okay. Oh my gosh. Uh-huh. Ives' wife, Annie, is writing like a, a biography or a children's book about him or something okay. like that. And Ives, eventually one of the healing things between them and their marriage is that they take a trip to England where she oh, goes- no, no, no. But they stole the first edition. Remember right, when right. those burglars mm-hmm. broke in and stole that first edition? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. But here's the thing. Central to Dickens was, think about all the orphans that are in Dickens. Oliver Twist. Yeah, that's why and, he likes them so much. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, Huelos loved Dickens. Yeah. And there's all those magical real elements. And plus... Dickens was really concerned about the plight of the of the the economically deprived, the socially deprived. I mean, hugely. Um, that was a big part of who he was. And this whole book is about that. It's about that, especially about um, the Hispanic community in 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 New York City and how Ives goes there and tries to lift up that community and how they and they struggle and he tries to help all these people who are underprivileged because of their social class or their ethnicity or something so like that. Are you, no, 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 no. Are you saying seriously that Mr. Ice Christmas is like the Christmas carol for now? Are you saying that? I'm not saying that, but I'm saying that that um I think that it was highly influenced by Dickens. Okay. And I think Huelos was highly influenced by Dickens in writing this book. Okay. I mean, because you have a book set at Christmas that has ghosts riddled all the way through it. Robert shows up okay. at one point. Yeah, Robert and Carmen. And Carmen shows up. Okay. And I mean, and then you have this vision of four winds over the... You have Caroline's vision in Nepal. You have Caroline's vision in Nepal okay. and things like that. Okay. So, I mean, I could see that. for for all the tragedy that happens in this book, um, Huelos has to move this book to a point where where um, he can, where just like in a Dickens book, there has to be forgiveness, there has to be redemption, and there has to be an acceptance. Okay. Okay, okay. now let, let's talk about one more thing before we move on to writing the book. Okay. Because I'm kind of interested. Some people, when they read the ending of this book, um, which is, well, let me just read the last paragraph of this okay. book. Because here's here, it's sort of ambiguous mm-hmm. in a way. So Ives has gone through all this. He's forgiven Danny Gomez. He's, he's cured of his skin condition. You know, everybody is happy. His uh, daughter, Carolyn, has married Ramirez's son, yeah. Pablo or Paul. He ties things and, up. And Ramirez is at a point where he's happy with himself and his life. And then we get this last paragraph where Ives goes to church, and I think it's on Christmas. Mm -hmm. And this is the last two paragraphs. There he sat, and as with his habit of old, as was his habit of old, he began his quiet meditations. 
Above the altar in that church was a statue of Christ set back in a kind of nook, and on either side of him, representations of the Holy Mother and St. John the Baptist with their expressions of divine knowledge. Looking at the altar, he remembered another of his childhood thoughts. In the same way that the baby Jesus, the promise of the world, lay resting in his crib, adored by the Magi and the shepherds and basking in the warm warmth of angelic and familial love, which is what Ives wanted his whole life, right? So did the man Jesus, down from the cross and awaiting his final resurrection, lay resting inside the altar beneath the chrismond cloth. He laughed, remembering how the slightest breeze from the church's open doors rustling the altar's cloth had made Ives' little heart jump. At any moment, Jesus would be coming out of his resting place and the world would be filled with miracles. He would be dressed in great flowing white robes, a beautiful light filling the church. With pained but transcendent eyes, bearded and regal, he would come down the central aisle toward Ives and placing his wounded hands on Ives' brow, give his blessing before taking him away and all others who were good in this world off into his heaven with its four mysterious winds where they would be joined unto him and all that is good forever and ever without end. But does he really die there or is this just Ives' vision of what's going to happen at the end of his life? I think he takes him to heaven right then. You know, I I I want to think that he dies in the church yeah, right at that moment. But he but the but the but the uh, verbs in this is he would come down the central aisle. Um, and so it's this would. It's not he did come down the central aisle. Okay. Okay. Hmm. So I yeah, that is kind of weird. So it it I mean you have to really look at those last two paragraphs, and I've done this with my students and in. in uh, good books because some of them are like, well, Ives dies at the end. And then some of them are like, well, no, he doesn't. And when you look at those last two paragraphs, yeah, um, I guess it's, maybe he doesn't. It's, 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 he would do this. Right. Christ would come down from the altar and all this. Yeah. So it's another one of, it's, it's a, I think it's Ives vision of his own death. Yeah. I agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. so anyway. Okay. Well, now that we are now in the 21st hour of talking about <laughs> We've been Mr. talking Christmas. about suicidal Christmas depression for a while now, and we have reached that point in the Lit for Christmas party where Martin is almost too drunk to speak coherently. I, I have been speaking coherently all, all night long. <laughs> so now, uh, now that we have to rate this episode's work of Christmas Lit. That's right. Um, my co-hosts and I rate all of the Lit on this podcast from one to five Tiny Tims. One Tiny Tim being the worst. Tiny Tim is gunned down on the steps of Westminster Abbey and Ebenezer Scrooge fires Bob Cratchit for missing work to attend Tim's funeral. Five Tiny Tims being the best. Tiny Tim grows up and becomes the Archbishop of Canterbury. Scrooge <laughs> <laughs> joins the musical group The Pogues and co-writes the song Fairy Tale of New York. Wow. Yeah, that's, wow. that's, that's good, eh? That's good. All right. Well, Beth, um, now that we've reached this point, um, 
How many? You're gonna kill me with this. How many Tiny Tims did Mister Ives' Christmas earn from you? And I want you to tell me if I've changed your mind yes, in you our have, discussion actually. about it. Okay. Actually, I was gonna give it three. Three. Yes, okay. because I really hated this book and how de freaking depressing. I'm sorry. <laughs> wow. How, how freaking depressing it is. I hate that. But now that we've been talking about it and we're talking about forgiveness and, you know, about how powerful forgiveness is and I don't know, I think I might be able to give it four. I'm not giving it five because it is so freaking depressing. I'm not giving it five. I refuse to, but I might be convinced to give it four. Is that your final answer? That's my final <laughs> answer. I'm giving it four tiny tips. Well, this is going to come as no surprise. Yeah, you gave it five. I haven't said that I'm yet. I'm sure you gave it five because you love this book. But here's the reasons why. I've heard the reasons why. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> here's the reasons why. <laughs> I think that this book really focuses on really the central idea of Christmas and the biblical narrative of Christmas. And the whole thing of why this son of God, if you, if you, you know, believe in the, the Christmas narrative and everything, why the son of God was sent into this world. The reason he was sent into this world is to forgive the world. I'm still not and everything, I, I'm still this, not is, giving... this is my time. <laughs> I'm still not giving it five, no matter how bad you want I'm me to. I'm not trying to convince you. I, I am justifying my answer. Okay, sorry. Sorry. Okay, so what it is, is because of that, and yes, I will give you that this book is depressing, but if you're going to say that this book is depressing, so the Son of God is born in a manger, yeah. has to flee to Egypt because right. a king sent all of his soldiers into the town where he was born to murder every child that was two years, every male child that was two years or younger. Right. Then this child, the son of God, has to live in Egypt for the first like 10 or 12 years of his life right. because it's too dangerous for him to come home. Right. And then he comes home and he lives for a while until he reaches the age of 33, 30. Right, because he's three years of ministry. Right, and then he goes and he's an itinerant minister where people are trying to, like, um, you know, kill him and they try to throw him off a cliff because of what he does some at one point, you know, and things like that. Okay. And he's, he escapes. And then eventually he's arrested, nailed to a tree, tortured, scourged, and dies. This is the Christmas, this is all part of the Christmas narrative, you know, because that's what it's all about. He has to undergo all that in order to forgive the world. <laughs> so I think that this book itself is sort of a reflection in a, oh, no. in a, in a human way of what, I'm not saying Ives is a Christ figure. I was I'm not, just going No, to I'm say not that. saying that. What I'm saying is that Ives, in his own person, reflects everything that that Christ in the biblical narrative of of Christmas does. Because Christ is all about forgiveness. Is all about forgiveness. I'm still not giving it a five. I'm not going. To, I'm not asking you to. 
I'm not asking you to. Okay. I'm. This but is I'm my reasoning. That I, whether you want to change it or not, this is the reason why I'm giving okay, my. Sorry, your time. Sorry. I, I'm not asking you to. I'm not trying to convince you otherwise. Okay. Sorry. Um. So for me, because of all this, you know, this book for me is a five tiny Tim book. I knew it you were going to say, I told you you were going to say it was five. Well, I knew you were going to say it was five. anybody that has been listening five. to this uh, 15-hour broadcast, <laughs> podcast episode, will know that I'm doing that. Yes, from the very beginning, I love this book. Um, and I think that it's it's an amazing piece of writing. I think Huelos, um, you know, I out of all of Huelos' book, for me, it's the most moving. Um, and it's the deepest. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I, I just think that for anybody that's looking for something that really talks about what Christmas is all about. Which is forgiveness. Which is, which is you know, redemption. Mm -hmm. Forgiveness and redemption. Redemption yeah. uh, and, and belief in the goodness of human beings, yeah. even despite everything that all the evidence to the, to that, that goes against that belief. That's why this book is a five tiny Tim book. Okay. Okay. All right. Whew. Well, now that Beth has taken her Prozac <laughs> and ranked Mr. I'm's Christmas, it is time to create some Christmas lit ourselves. I'll honor Christmas in my heart and I'll try and keep it all the year. I live in the past, the present, and the future. I will not shut out the lessons that they teach. The lessons that they teach. That time in the Lit for Christmas party when we, your hosts, are slightly drunk, me, to completely plastered <laughs> Martin. Hey. And we take a pen and paper and embarrass ourselves by trying to write something. This month, it is the lessons that Oscar Huelos teaches. Oh. I'm going to give you a writing prompt based on a passage from Mr. Ives Christmas. And then my wife and I are going to write for 15 minutes. Uh, after 15 minutes, Martin and I will share what we have written. But we want you to join us in this little drunken exercise in writing humiliation. So grab whatever you write with, whether it's a pen, paper, your phone, laptop, and once you hear the prompt, pause the podcast, set a timer for 15 minutes, and write. So freshen up your drinks, stream a little Perry Como, and write with us. I do not recommend freshening up your drinks. <laughs> okay, okay. I, do, I don't. Okay. I don't. <laughs> okay. No. Pour yourself some water. So what do you have for us tonight, honey? Okay. So um, let me get out my notes here. So, um, I, I, there's at one point, we didn't talk about this in really great detail in the book, but at one point, um, uh, Ives has this vision. Oh, actually, I think we did touch upon it a little bit where he has this vision after he's almost killed in a, in a elevator accident, you know, um, that he goes out into the streets of New York and, um, has this vision mystical vision of like four colored winds floating above the the streets of Mad I'm not sure if it's Broadway or Madison Avenue. City. Yeah. Okay. So I'm gonna read you that particular passage. I just gotta okay. find the page. Okay. 
It might not be in this one because I think I used the paperback version. You like paperback one? No, just a second. It might be in this one. All right. I got the paperback one. I know you do, but let me find this. Okay. Time's a ticking. It's been 15 hours All right. already. Here we go. Here we go. Um, I'm going to read you a couple paragraphs. Um, so this is this is uh, I um, Hiwelo's describing Mr. Ives' um, vision. Um, then something unusual, else unusual happened. Walking down the street toward the impossibly crowded avenue and standing shoulder to shoulder amid a throng of shoppers on the corner, Ives was waiting for the light to change when he blinked his eyes and, in a moment of pure clarity that he would always remember, began to feel euphoric. All the world's goodness, as it were, spinning around him. At the same time, he began to feel certain physical sensations, the sidewalk under him lifting ever so slightly and the avenue dense with holiday traffic fluttering like an immense carpet and growing wider and stretching onward as if it would continue to do so forever, an ever expanding river of life. And the skyscrapers that lined Madison Avenue, beginning with the Young and Rubicon building, just across the street with its streams of employees rushing in and out of its revolving doors began to waver, the buildings bowing as if to recognize Ives, bending as if the physical world were a grand joke. And in those moments, he could feel the very life of the concrete in the concrete below him, the ground humming, pipes and tangles of cables, wires, and wires beneath him, endless ticking, moving, animated objects. Why, it was as if he could hear molecules grinding, light shifting here and there, the vibrancy of things and spirit everywhere. In one slip of a second, anything seemed possible. Had the moon risen and started to sing, had pyramids appeared over the Chrysler building, weeping, Ives would have been no more surprised. It's a beautiful, beautiful lyrical passage mm -hmm. it is. Um, describing what Ives saw, which is a vision of goodness, mm -hmm. you know, a total vision of goodness. Okay. So um, in response to this vision that I just write to you, I'm going to give you two possibilities. OK, um, one, you could write about a time when somehow you felt that kind of connection to the world um, in some way, like Ives does in that passage. When, when all the goodness of the world seems visible, seems somehow visible to you, in some way, okay. Or, or the other option that you can do is write about, write just some kind of vision, mystical or otherwise, that you've had, okay. Um, so you can choose one or two of those things. So can I write both. Um, well, I mean, if you're what you're going to write about encompasses both, yes. Okay, cool. Um, there, you know, and here's the thing, if that doesn't work for you, then write about something completely different. Okay. That works for me. Okay. So anyway, everybody, um, I'm going to, uh, here's what you need to do now. You need to pause the podcast for 15 minutes, um, write with us and, um, we will see you at the end of 15 minutes.
Okay, uh, time is up. And as always, that was the fastest 15 minutes in my life. And I'm not sure what I wrote would snap Ives out of his depression. <laughs> I'm pretty sure mine would end him up in a hospital room under <laughs> close observation. Oh, good. Um, so why don't you go first then, Beth? <laughs> okay, let me see if I can make it through this. Okay. I'm not allowed to cry. I, I just might, but so I'll just, I'll try. Um, one bright, gorgeous summer day, I was alone in the house. This was before we had kids. I was going through some uh, hard times. I was feeling a call to ministry and I was struggling with what this call would mean to our family. I was praying and crying and praying and crying. I was just heartbroken and I felt at the lowest point I had felt in a long time. I was straightening in the living room, I think. I remember being on my knees in the living room. I was listening to this Rebecca St. James CD and um, the song that I was listening to was called Go and Sin No More. It talks about, um, it says, because I will never leave you, I'll forgive and I'll forget it. It was like that. Um, and all of a sudden, I felt this warmth come over me, like um, filling me head to toe. Like all the pain in my heart was lifted away. And the room filled with light streaming in from both windows, just like streaming. I was looking all around the room and all I could see was light. The furniture was bathed in light and the carpet was bright white. And I felt so peaceful. My heart felt full. Like maybe things were going to be okay. Like we might figure this whole ministry thing out. I knew that Jesus Christ was with me in that moment and I knew things would be okay. It wasn't going to be easy. A call to ministry never is. But I just felt like um, God had come to me at that time to let me know that we could do this. Together we would see it through and come out the other side. It only lasted a few seconds or a minute, but I remember coming out of the vision so awestruck. I called a missionary friend of mine to explain to her what happened because I needed to tell someone who would understand the feeling I had had about being touched by Jesus. I don't remember what she said, and that's not important. What is important is that I experienced the whole of God's forgiveness on that day, and I so wish I could go back to that feeling because I've done some terrible things in my life and I'd like to know that God still believes in me and thinks I'm worthy of forgiveness. Wow. Okay. Well, there you go. Um, I told you. <laughs> okay. You know, it's it's very narrative. So that's, but it, but it's an important moment. And I think that that's exactly what Ives is all about. Um, because Ives has, it's all about forgiveness. Um, so this, what I wrote is called The Day She Left. She had that look I've seen in paintings of saints who were being pierced by, uh, by an angel's spear, crushed with stones, turned into a bonfire. Her eyes were focused on something distant in the ceiling, as if she could see the Titanic pulling into New York Harbor, or the Twin Towers falling upward, reforming into glass and steel fingers pointing toward the heavens. I was standing beside her hospital bed, listening to the footsteps of her breath walking away from me, and she was already gone, boarding the Titanic, 
standing at the top of Tower One, waiting to ascend. I watched her face as it changed before my eyes from fear to struggle to peace to joy, like a crystal spinning in morning sun. My sister rose before my eyes, drifted away from me, the way ash rises above fire, spinning and twirling in the confluence of heat and wind until it becomes an ascending meteor, fragment of aurora, light of a star that winked out 20,000 years ago. So there you go. Um, neither of those were really that uplifting. So, <laughs> neither is the book. Okay. I think that the book is uplifting, but okay, we're I'm done. We're done. Having, we're done talking I'm about. I'm not giving it five tiny tims. Right. We are. We have moved past that point. I'm just saying. All right. So, um, so you know that uh, we are now in the second season of the podcast, and we are still waiting to read some of uh, your listener responses to our writing prompts. So um, if you do this, um, please um, uh, share it with us. Paste it, paste what you wrote in the comments to this episode or email it to litforchristmas at gmail.com. And we will read, we will read what you send us on our next episode. Speaking of next episode. I know you. You, you are the ghost of Christmas yet to come. You'll show me the shadows of things that have not happened, but will happen in the time before us. As a spirit, ghost of the future. Oh, I fear you more than any specter I've seen. For our March episode, we will be reading Irish writer Sally Rooney's novel, Normal People. Which I know is one of your favorite books of the last few years. Well, it, it is. Uh, I'm not sure how Christmassy it is, but it does have a Christmas scene in it. So and that is all it takes, apparently. Hey, Jerry D at Totally Rad Christmas. It doesn't. If it happens somewhere close to Christmas, we're good. So is Die Hard a Christmas movie then? No. Okay. Oh, I don't think so either. <laughs> so. Hey, listeners, get yourself a copy of Normal People by Sally Rooney and restock your liquor cabinets. Your invitation is already in the mail for March's Lit for Christmas party, which will drop, hopefully, on March 24th. So join us in a month as we get lit for Christmas again. again. You promised me Broadway was waiting for me You're handsome You were pretty queen of New York City When, when the band finished playing They held out for more Sinatra was swinging All the jokes they were singing We kissed on the corner Then danced through the night The boys of the NYPD choir Were singing Go away play And the bells were ringing out For Christmas Day 
had no further intercourse with spirits, but lived upon the total abstinence principle ever afterwards. And it was always said of him that he knew how to keep Christmas well, if any man alive possessed the knowledge. May that be truly said of us, all of us. And so as Tiny Tim observed, God bless us, everyone. Thank you for coming to our little Yuletide shindig. The theme for this show is Jingle Bells Jazzy Style by Julius H., used courtesy of Pixabay. And the Lit for Christmas writing music is A Christmas Treat by Magic 828, also used courtesy of Pixabay. All music, sounds, audio clips, and quotes in this podcast are the property of their individual copyright holders. They are used solely for the purposes of commentary and review. No copyright infringement is intended. Tomorrow morning, drink lots of water, go to the library and check out some Christmas books, visit the liquor store and stock up on Christmas cheer. Your invitation is already in the mail for next month's Lit for Christmas party. The tree will be lit, and so will we. Let's keep the Christmas spirits flowing all year long.